Please turn with me in your Bibles to John 8. John 8, picking up this evening after last week, we'll pick up in verse 12. Last week we were talking about the woman taken in adultery. And we had some lessons on true religion that were drawn from that, recognizing that true religion uh, has no room for hypocrisy. True religion has no room for, um, well, it leaves room at all times for mercy. These concepts that were reflected in our Lord Jesus Christ as he dealt with the woman taken in adultery. This week we pick up in John 8, beginning verse 12. And my wife and I are both book readers. Now, we are different book readers, but book readers nonetheless. My wife is a fiction book reader. I am a non-fiction book reader. She likes to curl up with a good book in the evenings. If I read in the evenings, I tend to get all wound up because I'm reading something theological, and I it gets my wheels turning, and then I can't sleep at night because I'm... The wheels just keep turning and they just won't stop turning. And so we have differences in our particular enjoyments as far as reading goes. But regardless of those differences, we love to read. Now, all readers, anyone who is an avid reader or for whatever reason, perhaps at school, is forced to be an avid reader, um, understands the analogy I'm about to bring forth. Have you ever been reading? Perhaps you've been reading for some time and throughout the time that you've been reading, maybe maybe the sun was going down and it began to get dark or um, maybe the, the sun went behind the clouds. And for whatever reason, as you were reading, it gets fairly dim and you just keep reading and you, you haven't even really noticed how dim it's gotten. And then somebody comes into the room and they look at you and that one eyebrow goes up like, what are you doing? And they flick on a light. And you look down at your book and you say, wow, thank you. I can see now. And you're, you, you don't, didn't even realize that you couldn't really, you were squinting, that you were straining to read, but because the darkness had come on gradually, whatever the case may be, you were reading almost literally in darkness. And someone came and flipped on a light and said, look, just turn on the light. And you said, oh wow, look, great, thank you. I can See now. Now you were fine in the darkness while the darkness was all that there was, but when you had light and you realized how much better light is, the light was very beneficial. Now wouldn't it be foolish if you were squinting and straining in the dark, someone came in, gave you the one eyebrow, flicked on a light, and you said, What are you doing? I was reading. Would you please turn that light back off? How foolish would that be? How misguided would that be? How confusing would it be for us to prefer to not be able to well read the pages that we're looking at as we're attempting to read? Now, imagine a world that has been illuminated by the truth of God. A world that within this world, the very truth of God is present. The truth that God is a good God, a creator God, that He is, and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him, and yet imagine a world that 
when the light of the gospel shines into their hearts, whether it's through creation, whether it's through the word of God, whether it's through the testimony of a friend or the words of a friend or however the case may be, imagine a world where that the realities are illuminated to them and the only thing they say is, hey, flick that light back off. Hey, turn it off. I was doing just fine without it. I could see just fine without it. Turn that light back off. That is the world we live in. We live in a world that whenever the light of the gospel shines into their hearts, the world at large says, hey, flick that light back off. Now there are those who, when that light is flicked on, they say, wow, I can't believe this. I can finally see. Thank you for turning the light on. And so we see these two opposing realities. Uh, realities which we traced all throughout the book of John, and we're going to see them again this evening. Two opposing thoughts about life and light, darkness and death. So let's look at them in John 8, beginning in verse 12. Let's go ahead and read the whole passage together. We'll read through verse 30. Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. The Pharisees therefore said unto him, Thou bearest record of thyself, thy record is not true. Jesus answered and said unto them, Though I bear record of myself, yet my record is true. For if I know whence I came, and whither I go, but ye cannot tell whence I come and whither I go, yet... Judge, uh, excuse me, ye judge after the flesh, I judge no man. And yet, if I judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone, but I and the Father that sent me. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one that bear witness of myself, and the Father that sent me beareth witness of me. Then said they unto him, Where is thy Father? Jesus answered, Excuse me. <clears throat> Jesus answered, Ye neither know me nor my Father. If ye had known me, ye should also know my Father also, or ye should have known my Father also. These words spake Jesus in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no man laid hands on him, for his hour was not yet come. Then said Jesus again unto them, I go my way, and ye shall seek me and shall die in your sins. Whither I go, ye cannot come. Then said the Jews, Will he kill himself? Because he saith, Whither I go, ye cannot come. He said unto them, Ye are from beneath, I am from above. Ye are of this world, I am not of this world. I said therefore unto you, that ye shall die in your sins, for if ye believe not that I am he, ye shall die in your sins. Then said they unto him, Who art thou? Jesus said unto them, Even the same that I said unto you from the beginning. I have many things to say and to judge of you, but he that sent me is true. And I speak to the world those things which I have heard of him. They understood not that he spake unto them, uh, to them of the Father. Then said Jesus unto them, When ye have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall ye know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself. But as my Father hath taught me, I spake these things. And he that sent me is with me. Father hath not left me alone, for I do always those things that please him. And he spake the, as he spake these words, many believed on him. The first 
opposing thought that I would like us to see this evening is is it's it's broken into two kind of three clauses. Receive the light, follow the light, walk in the light. Receive the light, follow the light, walk in the light. Jesus is still in the temple following the events of the woman taken in adultery. We will find in verse 20 that Jesus is teaching in a place known as the treasury. You see that in verse 20, these words spake Jesus in the treasury. Now, the Jewish temple was divided into numerous parts. Surrounding the actual temple complex on the most outer wall was what is called oftentimes Solomon's porch. It was a ring of covered walkways that surrounded the temple complex and was a place of commerce, was a place of business, was um, just that place where people could speak, conduct business, all of those things. Solomon's porch. Now, Also surrounding the temple was something called the court of the Gentiles. This was the nearest any Gentile or an unclean Jew, if a Jew was ceremonial unclean because of the very many things in the law that would make them ceremonially unclean. If he was ceremonially unclean, the nearest he could go to the temple at any given time until he was no longer unclean would be the court of the Gentiles. So you have Solomon's porch. Uh, then you have the court of the Gentiles. Now, entering into the inner temple, there were three courts within that inner temple. You would enter into the gate. Most likely, the gate beautiful was surrounding that actual uh, temple complex, uh, though it, some speculate that it may have been in Solomon's porch. Most likely, it was actually surrounding the, the inner temple complex itself. The easternmost court. Now, um, the the temple uh, would the the door was in the east. And it would everything flow um, in the in the westerly direction as the temple would progress. And so, if we think about it, north, south, east, and west, then we have as we're walking through the temple. The first thing that we have is the court of women. Now, the court of women was also known as the treasury. So only Jews could get into this court. However. It was the most outer, outermost court, so this would be the area of the the temple where most of the um, speaking and socializing and fellowshipping would have been done. On top of that, this is where the giving boxes were, and they did that so that both man and woman, any one of the Jews could give, and so these treasuries were found in the court of the women. Now, continuing westward, continuing inward, into the temple, we would have the court of Israel. This would have been the court for the men. So you have the court for the women, then you have the court that only the men could get into, and then there was a the, the innermost court, which was called the court of priests. That led up to the temple itself, and only Levitical priests were allowed to enter into that court. And so Jesus Christ, as he is teaching, he is in the treasury. Now, this makes sense because the woman caught in adultery was thrown before him. That couldn't have happened if he was not in the court of of women. So it was clearly that he was there. He was there because he wanted everyone to hear. He didn't just want the men to hear. He wanted the women to hear. But we know from Jesus Christ's ministry that his ministry was definitively pointed toward the Jews. And so he was not in the court of the Gentiles. He was in the court that only the Jews could access. But this was the court of women, the treasury, the place where most people would have gone, the place that would have been almost like a commons area for the Jews to go as they were giving their money and such, paying their tributes, all of those things. Verse 12 tells us that Jesus spake to them, saying, let's read it together, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have 
the light of life. Because the Pharisees are here when Jesus Christ is saying these things, as we see in verse 13, it would seem as though it may not have happened immediately following the woman taken in adultery because we know that the Pharisees and the scribes that cast the woman before him left following the, their conviction in their hearts. So it may have been a time, or these may have been other Pharisees uh, that were speaking to him. But whatever the case, we have some Pharisees that are surrounding Jesus Christ as he makes this declaration to be the light of life. The Pharisees respond to Jesus' statement in verse 13. They say, Thou bearest record of thyself, and thy record is not true. Well, this is as interesting as it is ironic for these Pharisees to say. Why? Do you remember way back in John 5? We are currently in John 8, and in John 8, we are dealing with a feast. Let's get interactive for a moment, just for fun. What feast do we find ourselves in in John 8? It's the same one as John 7. You have three options. Troy, was that a hand? Feast of Tabernacles. Very good. And we remember last week we talked about the great day at the Feast of Tabernacles and, and how this would have been, maybe it was two weeks ago, this would have been the, the eighth day of the feast. The feast is officially seven days, but that last great day, the eighth day of the feast is actually a, a day commemorating the ending of all the year's feasts. And so we have, we are at the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, Jesus Christ that had been the eighth day. Is it still the eighth day? Well, it doesn't really say, but he's in the treasury. And recall that we speculate that way back in John 5, the healing of the man with the infirmity of the 38 years, we speculate that that was also at a Feast of Tabernacles. We do not know for sure. It was either Tabernacles or Pentecost. I speculate that it was Tabernacles. And so it's one year later, we recall that, we recall that Jesus Christ got into that conversation in John chapter 7 about the Sabbath, speaking specifically of John chapter 5 when they're dealing with it. And so all of these conversations are fresh on the minds of Jesus Christ, fresh on the minds of the people, and fresh on the minds of the Pharisees. They all remember what happened a year earlier at the Feast of Tabernacles in John chapter 5. They've brought it up again this year at the Feast of Tabernacles in John chapter 7. We've already rehashed all of these things about the Sabbath and the righteousness of judgment of the Pharisees and these sorts of things. And then we come to them saying, you bear witness of yourself and your witness is not true. Please turn with me back to John 5. Let's look beginning at verse 25. John 5, beginning in verse 25, and we'll read through verse 32. Jesus Christ says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself, and hath given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming, in which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice, and shall come forth they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just, because I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which hath sent me. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another that beareth witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesseth of me is true. And we recall that the other that he's speaking of is none other than the, the God, the Holy Spirit, and specifically the Scriptures. 
He is saying that the scriptures bear witness of him, that he is true. So here's the thing. You can turn back to John 8. Jesus Christ has gone through this already. That he has a Father in heaven who bears witness of him. That the Holy Spirit has borne witness of him. That the resurrection of the dead will bear witness of him. And that the scriptures bear witness of him. And here the Pharisees are rehashing the exact same argument that Jesus Christ has already addressed and he's already refuted. They say, you bear witness of yourself and your witness is not true. Well, Jesus replies with two points. The first point in verses 14 to 16. He answered and said unto them, Though I bear witness of myself, yet my record is true, for I know whence I came and whither I go. But ye cannot tell whence I come and whither I go. Ye judge after the flesh, I judge no man. He first says that it wouldn't matter if he was his only witness to his words because his witness is true. Now, we at Legacy Baptist Church, I personally love this statement, I could trust that we at Legacy Baptist Church love this statement because there's an important lesson to learn here. Our church is a church that holds to the supremacy of absolute truth. And the lesson is this. Absolute truth exists. And absolute truth is fully capable of standing upon its own feet and upon its own merit regardless of outside support and substantiation. Now, For example, the majority of the world believes that life evolved from single-celled organisms, you to goo, over billions of years. They present evidences. They give stirring speeches. And they stand upon it as fact. Yet even if every man on earth firmly believed that life evolved over billions of years, you to goo, this cannot change the truth that God created the earth in six literal days according to the Scriptures. Truth is truth regardless of what people think. And truth will always, always, always be vindicated. Truth will always bubble up to the top. Truth will always rise up regardless of how much men try to to stamp it out. Regardless of how often men try to, to... hide it, and to flick the light off and say, just leave me in my darkness. It doesn't change the fact that the truth is there. It just changes the fact that they're not willing to see it. Absolute truth. Jesus is standing upon it. Second point, though, that he makes in verses 18-20 through is that he does have another witness that bears witness of him, and that witness is God the Father. He's simply repeating the same argument that he said in John 5, and yet the men standing around him, knowing what he claims, and knowing why he claims it, had no answer. They could give no answer to his claims. They could not refute that the Holy Scriptures testified of him because everything that he did was aligned with the Word of God. They could not refute that he was born in Bethlehem, though they tried. They could not refute that he was born of a virgin, though they tried. They could not refute that he followed the law and lived under the law, though they tried. They couldn't refute these things. And Jesus Christ says, my witness is true and God the Father bears witness of me. Jesus' life and ministry was 100% in line with Messianic prophecy and Old Testament law expectation. 
And here we have a second important lesson, one that we would do well to remember. The mind of the Pharisees worked along these lines. They noticed that Jesus' life and ministry conformed itself to the Scriptures, but felt somehow that this was not sufficient to prove His claims of Messiah. And the reason why is because, not because Jesus didn't conform to Old Testament expectation, but because Jesus didn't conform to their expectation. It's not because Jesus didn't conform to Old Testament expectation. It's because Jesus didn't conform to their perception of God's character, their perception of who God was, what God said in His Word, and their expectation of what Messiah would be. And you know, we can do this in our lives as well. We set a religious framework through which we intend to serve God. As time goes by, that framework becomes routine. And we find the ability to accomplish our religious framework even when we aren't feeling particularly spiritual that day. We, through routine, and routine is not a bad thing, but we find the means by which to accomplish our religious framework in the flesh. We learn how to perform these religious acts in our own power, fully apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, when this happens, we begin to turn those religious actions into our God. Those religious actions turn into our conception of who God is, and that then, in our minds, redefines the nature of God to be consistent with the false God of our religious framework. Do you see, you see what I'm saying there? We say, I do this, 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 and this. Therefore, this, 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 and this are God. This is what God is. This is who God is. This is what comprises God. Because I do these things, and these things are done for God. Therefore, this comprises God. And we get confused in our conception of the nature and character of our God because we have replaced God with religion. Now let's brainstorm together for a moment. And I'm going to do so in a way that is... is I'm going to be walking a line here, and that's okay. Please take this within, in the spirit with its give, with, within which it's given, and um, we'll, we'll get through this. Now, we use the King James Bible. We do so in faith. We have studied history, bibliology, the scriptures themselves, and we are certain, we stand firm, that this is the best translation in English for the modern believer. We do so in faith, believing that every ounce of who we are, with every ounce of who we are, that this is the best and most faithful translation in English of our Bibles. We dress up for every service and we do so in faith, believing that this is an opportunity for us to give God the maximum glory by showing Him His worth by how we look when we come to church. We have very conservative music. We do so in faith because we believe that this music best honors God, 
keeps our hearts directed towards God and best reflects the character and nature of our God in music. And again, I say this very carefully. This is an example. What if Jesus came today and he was not like us? What if Jesus came today and he was not like us? Now, don't get me wrong. We do what we do in faith, believing that in doing so, we are as much like Jesus Christ as we can be. I am not saying that we're we're not. But what if Jesus came and he was not like us? This man comes into our congregation. He fulfills every biblical prophecy. He substantiates his message with scripture. He speaks as one having authority. He doesn't do things the way we do, though. Now, Jesus will not come into this congregation because the next time he comes, he's coming in the clouds to call his bride away, and then he will descend to the Mount of Olives. Mount of Olives will split in two. We know that. So he will never walk into this congregation. We know that. I'm giving a hypothetical here. Stick with me. So he doesn't do things the way we do. His manner of life is inconsistent with the religious framework that we have established. What would you do? Would we, like the disciples, recognize the authority and the truth and follow Jesus, even though we didn't quite know how Jesus' actions, which were so contradictory to everything that we had perceived and known, had uh, could, could possibly be true about God? See, the disciples throughout their ministry would oftentimes get confused at what Jesus did and didn't do. You remember... When the Pharisees went up to Peter and said, Hey Peter, does your, does your, your master pay tribute? Peter says, Of course he pays tribute. Jesus rebukes him and says, Why, why did you tell them that we will pay tribute? Do I have to pay tribute to my own house? And that's when he tells them to go and get the fish and the fish has the money in it. Peter. How could he even imagine that Jesus Christ would not pay tribute? That wouldn't even compute with him. He didn't meet up with the law's expectation in that regard within the interpretation of the law that was given by the Jews. And so, would we like the disciples follow Jesus or would we like the Pharisees reject Jesus Not because what he had said to us was wrong, but because he did not conform to our perception of what God expects or our perception of who God is. It comes down to our hearts, our priorities, and our perspective. Now again, I do not believe our church or anything about our doctrine or practice is hypocritical or misguided. But I do not fool myself into thinking that there are individuals, perhaps in this congregation, certainly in our circles, that are misguided in their worship. We must not fool ourselves into thinking that this is something that cannot happen to us, that we cannot, just because we love God and we believe the Bible, replace God with a religious framework because it can happen and it does happen and it must not happen happen to us. 
The error of the Pharisees, however, was far deeper than simply an error of standards. Theirs was an error of soteriology. Can anyone remind me the definition of soteriology? Elise. The study of biblical teaching as it relates to salvation. Thank you, Elise. Very good. I don't have my dum-dums. I'm sorry. It's the study of biblical teaching as it relates to salvation. And theirs was a problem of their entire understanding of salvation. The Pharisees refused outright to believe that Jesus was the light of the world. They refused to accept that Jesus had the answer to eternal peace with God that all men sought in every generation. Jesus' call, once again, was for these men to receive the light by receiving His message, the message of Jesus Christ, and by following that light. And His promise was that if men would receive the light, follow the light, and walk in the light, that they would be men that have the light of life. So we see that first contrast. Receive the light, follow the light, walk in the light. Let's look at its contrast in verses 21 through 30. Refuse the light, lose the light, die in your sins. Refuse the light, lose the light, die in your sins. Now in John 8, we are rapidly approaching the end of Jesus Christ's ministry and the culmination of the heart of unbelief found in the nation of Israel. We are now presumably, unless we miss a Passover somewhere in the text, we are presumably about six months removed from the Passover upon which Jesus Christ will give His life for your sins and for my own. Jesus is now openly declaring His fast-approaching death and is seeking to use these murderous hearts of the Pharisees, really murderous hearts is a good word to describe them at this point. He's seeking to use the murderous hearts of the Pharisees as one last plea to them to repent and to turn back to God. And so Jesus tells the Pharisees in verse 21, look at it with me. Then said Jesus unto them, I go my way and ye shall seek me and shall die in your sins. Whither I go, ye cannot come. His purpose is now to compel Israel through uh, is, is no longer, excuse me, to compel Israel through the promise of the kingdom. It is now to compel them to convince them through the danger of eternal judgment. Israel has already rejected the kingdom, but that didn't mean that they were doomed necessarily to die in their sins. If only they would realize the danger that they were under and turn from their sins. Now the Pharisees, in hearing this statement, were confused. Where would he go that we could not seek him? And they ask, will he kill himself? Even more, they were offended, for again he openly stated to the most religious men in Israel that they were on a path toward eternal death, mired in their sins. That though the Pharisees had sought for salvation with every ounce of their effort, that though they had given up everything for salvation and sought it, intentionally, purposefully, honestly, and with all their hearts. They were groping in darkness and the one person that came to flick on the light, they said, hey, 
Turn that light back off. We don't want it on. They're doing all they can to read. They're squinting in the darkness to read those pages. Someone finally comes, flicks on the light. They see what those pages contain and they say, hey, flick that light back off. And so they're still grasping in the darkness for a salvation that they refuse to accept. Jesus explains to them in verse 23 that he is of heaven. They are of this world. The world has no place in heaven. The earthly realm has no place in the spiritual realm. The physical realm has no place in the spiritual realm. It cannot attain into the, the, the spiritual realm. To have life in the world to come, they must reject their roots in this life. An action that is absolutely unnatural to mankind and must be done with both humility and an impoverished spirit, not with pride and self-confidence. This is why, according to verse 24, Jesus tells them that they shall die in their sins. Because if they believe not that He is God, that He is He, that He is the Messiah, they will die in their sins. Pharisees again ask, Who are you to tell us that we are dead in our sins? How dare you? Who are you to say these things? Well, Jesus has already answered this. They know His authority. They know His source. And yet Jesus patiently says that He is a messenger. That His words are nothing more than Him echoing the words of His Father. And as we evangelize this world, the words that we speak are nothing short of the words that Jesus Christ spoke. And the words that Jesus Christ spoke are nothing short of the words of the God of all the universe to mankind. But they didn't understand. The Pharisees did not understand. But Jesus states that they would understand. There was coming a day that they would understand. Verse 28, He tells them that when they lift Him up, prophesying there of the manner of his death, they will know that he was who he said he was. The day that he is lifted up, that being a common analogy for the day to being crucified, to being hung on a tree, when he is lifted up, he says, they will know him. They will know who he was and they will know that the Father had sent him. And they will know that he, they will know that he had accomplished the will of his Father. But what Jesus did not tell them is that they, having finally known that Jesus was who He claimed to be, would still not believe on Him. That even when they finally realized the light, in their hearts they had already rejected the light, embraced darkness, and that they would die in their sins. Could they yet repent? Most certainly. But would they ever repent? No, they would not. Because they love darkness rather than light. Now, how silly would it be 
to read in the dark when we have access to light. How misguided it is to remain in blindness when the means of sight is freely available. Most of us in this room have received the light of life, the light of Jesus Christ by grace through faith, and have believed on the name of Jesus Christ unto eternal salvation. But as we close, we can and ought take time to search our own hearts regarding the light. We once came to the light. We find safekeeping in this light, but as children of light, have we allowed ourselves to drift back into the way of darkness? Have our own religious ideas, have our own carnal ambitions compelled us away from the truths which so bold, which we so often and so boldly claim and have taken us into a life of self-righteousness and false piety? That is the question of introspection this evening. You know, we would do well to remember that the light of this world is not you. The light of this world is not your pastor. The light of this world is not your church. The light of this world is not your denomination or your associations. The light of this world is Jesus Christ. It is our duty not to push our concepts of Christ's light, not to push our ideas of Christ's light, not to push our frameworks of Christ's light. It is our duty to reflect Christ's light to the world. We don't conjure up Christ's light. We reflect Christ's light. We don't create a flame. We emit a flame. We are a reflection. We are not a source. And it is when we are living and walking in Christ's light that others may see the light, be drawn to the light, and accept the light to the saving of their souls. This is our ambition, for this is the will of God. May God help us to live it.